Welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century. I'm Joe Hawthorne, and today we're discussing warfare on the African Gold Coast. Now, part of Ghana, the Gold Coast in West Africa was a crown jewel of the British Empire. But it wasn't always that way. Over the 19th century, the Brits fought five wars with the Ashanti Kingdom for control of this territory. We're joined by the History of Africa podcast to understand how these specific wars began and what they meant for the future of the continent. Without further ado, here come the Anglo-Ashanti Wars. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here with Andy, host of the History of Africa podcast. And he's been researching the Anglo-Ashanti Wars in his newest season, but he's also covered Egypt and Ethiopia on previous excellent seasons of the History of Africa podcast. Thanks so much for joining, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Same. And I am really excited when you reached out to talk about these wars. These are conflicts that I had never heard about before, but seem really critical to understanding history of the continent at the turn of the 20th century. So we're going to do something a little bit historic today in that we're going to try and cover five different wars in one conversation. But before we get into the conflicts, can you give me and us some context? What was the state of the British and Ashanti empires or kingdom at the beginning of the 1800s? Well, I will actually raise you a harder one. We're actually going to be covering seven conflicts today, if you count the ones that I'm going to be listing in our introduction. So okay, deal. I want to start out by providing some context for the Ashanti, because unfortunately, the Ashanti historically, while relatively well known when it comes to African kingdoms of the early modern period, are still relatively obscure. Um, so the Ashanti are run by an ethnic group known as the Ashanti, which are part of a larger ethnic umbrella known as the Akan, who are the largest ethnicity in many regions throughout West Africa, but primarily in uh, Ghana is where they are at their largest majority. And like all Akan peoples of Ghana, they find their origins with a kingdom called Bonoman, which uh, originates in the 12th century. And, you know, fascinating history that is irrelevant to our conversation. But essentially, to make, a, to make a long matter short, it gradually dissolves over time into essentially going from a centralized kingdom into a confederacy of, of loosely related city-states and uh, at, like little clans into essentially not existing. And one of those clans that was once part of the Bonaman kingdom is called the Oyoko. And they are uh, basically a small family unit. Uh, they could be called a tribe or a clan, you know, not a very big centralized empire. And the o Oyoko clan founds a city called Kumasi, meaning city under the kumquats, uh, because basically the founder of the city planted three kumquat trees and saw where they grew the fastest to find the most fertile soil. It's a fascinating story. And this new city of Kumasi uh, quickly starts to grow as an economic center, but it's not the big boy on the block. Uh, the big boy on the block is the city called Denkira, uh, which is run by another group of Akan peoples. And Denkira is this very wealthy, small but wealthy trading empire that basically rules over uh, Akan peoples under their rule with an iron fist. And eventually, a man named Ose Tutu, who is basically the sort of national hero of the Ashanti, 
um, decides to unite the various disparate Ashanti clans and declare himself the Asante Hene, which basically means King of the Ashanti. And he fights a war against the Denkira and defeats them. And the Ashanti are now an independent kingdom. However, they're basically just at this point still a collection of clans. So in order to really create a national identity where one previously hadn't existed, he unites them around what is called the golden stool, in which he takes the royal stool, you know, basically like the throne of the Ashanti, coats it in gold, and in Ashanti belief, basically, the stool holds the soul of whoever sits on it. And so this golden stool holds all the souls of the people who have sat on it, who are him and the future Asante Henes. So just to jump in for all listeners, that stool is going to come back into play. There's a reason we're bringing it up now. Oh, for sure. For sure. It will be of great importance later. And because it's basically, you know how Americans are very sensitive about our, about our flag? Imagine that times 100 um, when it comes to the golden stool. It is the Ashanti kingdom. And upon rising into becoming this centralized empire, uh, the Ashanti immediately find themselves at war with most of their neighbors, simply because the West African economy of the time is really defined by three products, which are gold, ivory, and slaves. And gold and ivory are very finite resources. Gold comes out of the ground, you find a mine, you basically exploit that mine until it's out of gold, and then you move on. You conquer a new one and you exploit that one. Similarly, uh, ivory, you basically hunt certain hunting grounds for elephants. You know, not great for conservation, but great for the coffers of whatever kingdom you're working for. And uh, then you you hunt it until there's no more elephants, and then you conquer a new hunting ground and do the same there. And of course, slaves are a byproduct of that conquest to begin with. To clarify, what time period are we talking about right now as the Ashanti are consolidating? Oh, I should have mentioned that. Yes, uh, this takes place around the 17th century. Okay. So a few centuries before, we're, we're building a few centuries before to the 18th century and onward. But right now we're in the 1600s. And so basically, that whole the whole West African economy relies on military conquest of one type or another. And so the Ashanti, in order to get a leg up, uh, invite basically the from a neighboring kingdom called Akwamu, who uh, Ose Tutu had previously, you know, he had previously lived there. He had great deep running connections between himself and the royal family of this other kingdom. He invites them because they are renowned for their advanced tactical skills. And he essentially invites military advisors to Ashanti to instruct their army in the Akwamu ways of war. And if you've ever studied European history in the 19th century, what I'm about to say will sound really familiar to you. Because this new Ashanti army is composed of seven different parts. At the front, there are the scouts who scout. Behind them, there are the advanced guard, who basically are some of the best drilled troops in the Ashanti army. They are meant to basically uh, directly engage at the enemy, clamp them in one spot, and... Uh, basically prevent them from engaging in any sort of mobility where they get met by the next section of the army, which is the main army. It's a lot less professional than the other sections. It's mostly composed of conscripts. And I guess you could call it sort of the meat wall of the army, if that makes sense. It's 
the part of the army where just you pack as many people together as possible. And it's sort of the main body of the force. Now on each side, there are the left and right wings, which are uh, composed of veteran professionalized troops who are supposed to encircle the enemy. Uh, around the general, there's the general's guard. Again, if, if you've studied 19th century European history, this will remind you a lot of Napoleon's imperial guard because they are forces that are rarely ever used in battle. They are among the most well-trained tra- and drilled within the Ashanti army, and they are only used in basically emergency circumstances. Behind them is the, the rear guard, who basically just prevent the army from being encircled by defending the rear. And then the last one is actually unique in West Africa. They're the first ones to do it in any major capacity is that they have a support garrison of medics and artisans who can, you know, uh, chop down trees to clear paths and uh, make boats for river crossings and treat the wounded and, you know, do logistical support, which is a lot more important in warfare than it sounds, as we're going to quickly learn. And so I said that would sound familiar, because if you've ever studied Napoleonic conflicts, that might sound a lot like the reforms that Napoleon made to the French army. Um, and that's, that is a coincidence, because this is about 100 years before these tactics are adopted in any major sense in Europe. Uh, they sort of covert, uh, what's the word, like evolve in a convergent manner, where they're not related to each other, but they just happen to end up at a similar spot. So, you know, I, <laughs> I, I confess I'm not an expert on European military tactics as well, or either or, <laughs> but I'm curious, what were the standard military practices like before this seven part army? In West Africa or in Europe? Yeah, well, I guess what was the upgrade that we're talking about? Is it all around having different kinds of units? Well, yeah, it's basically that you specialize the force more, whereas more it was, it was prior to that more of a generalized concept of that you have, um, you know, you have your uh, infantry, you have your artillery and your cavalry and your cavalry tries to encircle. Whereas what Napoleon introduced was this whole system of grenadiers and uh, basically like this whole system in which it's highly regimented, highly specialized. And the Ashanti have a system much more like that. The only thing that really differs is that because of the terrain of West Africa, you can't really have cavalry or artillery. Like, good luck wheeling cannons through the rainforests of Ashanti land. So they really only adopt them as, like, static defenses, but they don't really have them in their army just because it wouldn't be worth the effort. So it sounds like one of the first conclusions that we can draw is that the Ashanti are one of the most sophisticated militaries in the area. Um, yes and no, because believe it or not, the Ashanti are not that much more advanced than their neighbors in terms of tactics. Remember, they borrowed this from their neighbors. They didn't invent it. What really sets them apart is that support unit, you know, and that they have a, a full-time staff of medics and a full-time staff of people who can build bridges and uh, restock their army supplies and more importantly, that their army is better drilled and more professional. And when I say professional, I mean that most of the soldiers in the Ashanti, with the exception of the main body of the force, so all the wings and uh, advanced and rear guards I told you about, are all full-time soldiers. They do it for a living, right? If you ask these guys, where do you work? They would say, I work at the Ashanti army. Whereas, you know, other armies at the time might say, oh, I'm a farmer. 
you know, I just happened to be in the army of, I don't know, like Dahomey or another kingdom of the region. Um, and with this professionalized army, the Ashanti become, they go from basically a city state at Kumasi to becoming one of the major powers of West Africa. And they uh, basically, it aligns fairly well with the regions of Ghana, excluding the coast. And the Ashanti around, the, in a gradual process, basically conquer that whole region. There's an interesting history there, but it's not really relevant for our story. And what is relevant, though, is that by the beginning of the 19th century, they've reached the coast and they encounter a people named the Fonti. And the Fonti run a system called the Fonti Confederacy, where it's a bunch of loosely associated uh, clans who come together to sort of vaguely pay homage to a single uh, monarch. And these people are, uh, they have a system similar to the Ashanti, but again, it's mostly conscripts. Uh, but what they do have that's an advantage is that they're on the coast and they have deeper connections with European merchants, specifically the British. And this is where conflict really starts to become an issue. The British, since the 17th century, have been operating trade forts uh, by a company called the British Company of African Merchants, which is a, an English charter company, sort of something like the British East India or uh, British West Indian companies, if you've ever heard of those. And this company forms a really close alliance between the British and the Fonti. And that's a problem because the Ashanti and the Fonti are going to engage in a series of wars and the British are basically going to be called into those. Um, the first of these, and so the first time we see Ashanti troops clash with British ones, is in 1806 in the Ashanti-Fonti War. Um, and it is incredibly one-sided initially. The Ashanti basically sweep into Fonti land and just massacre the British and Fonti troops. But they do struggle to capitalize and they're forced to leave Fonti land. So I guess we can call it an Ashanti victory, but a limited one. And that they were able to basically crush the forces of their enemies, but they weren't really able to occupy the territory. And so I'm curious, do the British know or... How much would you say the British understand the geopolitical conflicts that they're walking into? Do they know who the Ashanti are before this battle or war? Oh, for certain, they, they, you have to assume that they did. Because the British have been present in West Africa for around 100 years, albeit in a very limited capacity. Really prior to, I'd say, like 1900, or sorry, not 1900, 1800, I mean, uh, European so-called colonization of Africa, for the most part, was limited to basically a few Europeans arrive in a boat and they build a fort and they trade with the locals from that fort. So yeah, the British knew who the Ashanti were and they knew that West African armies were generally, generally pretty professional. Um, so they weren't ignorant of the Ashanti military power at this time. It seems more so here that they were simply uh, trying to maintain a, a relationship with the Fonti. They're, at this point, British ambitions in West Africa are nothing colonial yet. They're, these are more like trading outposts, you'd say? Yeah, definitely. Okay. And so how does this start to change? Or how does this evolve, maybe we'll say? Oh, we'll definitely get to that. Um, we'll, we'll see that evolution process. Uh, but what's important is that in 1811... 
Uh, again, the Ashanti and the Fonti go to war. Basically, an Ashanti ally declares war on the Fonti. And again, the Ashanti crush the Fonti and their British allies. And they even capture a British fort, which is a pretty big deal because they were unable to do that in the first war. And usually when African forces defeat European ones at this time, they usually defeat their army but are unable to capture the fort. Um, and th- that's a pretty big deal. But in the end, uh, you have a similar outcome. The Ashanti win the war but fail to hold on to the territory that they capture. And the British sign a peace treaty with the Ashanti around this time. And basically until now, until 1820, this peace treaty is going to hold. But eventually, and this is where you see the ambitions start, is that the African company of merchants just completely economically implodes around 1820. Uh, the British ended the slave trade, and that was the main um, export of this company of merchants. So instead, the British government simply annexes, basically seizes all their remaining assets and turns uh, the British company of merchants, uh, the British company in company of African merchants into a, you know, another British uh, state possession. And they appoint a colonial governor, a guy named Charles McCarthy. And this is really important for Ashanti relations because that previous treaty with the British and the Ashanti is a bit of a misnomer. I shouldn't really be calling it a treaty between the British and the Ashanti. It's a treaty between the British company of African merchants and the Ashanti. And they're gone. So now the British are here and they don't recognize this old treaty with the Ashanti. Just for context, too, again, how big is this possession that the British government now is taking over? How much land or people? What is this place that the British are taking over? Um, Pretty minimal. At this point, basically, their control uh, is a... I'd say that you could probably approximate it to basically the Ghanaian coast and that they have the, uh, the Fonti sort of loosely on their side and they have a few forts. It's not a whole lot. And this, uh, basically this first war with the Ashanti that breaks out, uh, because the Ashanti, they do a raid into Fonti land and are really surprised when the British fire back at them because they think that they have a treaty with the British. Turns out that was with the company and the, Brits don't recognize it anymore. So in retaliation, they capture and imprison a British officer, and the British are just enraged by this. Like, the audacity to capture and imprison a British officer, like, hasn't really been done in the region before. And do the Ashanti understand the change that's happened, as, or do they know about the change that's happened as well? Uh, not yet. They're certainly not aware of this. It, it really seems more so to them, probably, that there's just this new governor who's acting afoul. You know, there's this new British guy in charge and he's acting a foul. Um, certainly, they'll recognize later that this was more of the beginning of a new era than anything else. But certainly at first, this probably just seemed like one British, you know, the new British guy's in charge and he's acting unusual uh, compared to the old ways. But certainly over time, they probably would have realized, like, this was when things started to go wrong between them and the British. and. This guy, Charles McCarthy, uh, he really tries to basically ruin any previous relationship that they had with the Ashanti. He is enraged by this audacity to capture a British officer. And he takes an army of 500 British 
and he just leads them straight into Ashanti land and basically an attempted invasion. And he is massacred. He leads 500 British soldiers in, 20 come out. Think about that. If you were in a group of 500 people, right, and they said, 20 of you are going to live and the rest are going to die, would you be thinking, oh, yeah, I like those odds? (laughs) Probably not. Um, And one of the people who dies is McCarthy himself. And not only does he die, but the Ashanti, because they're sort of outraged by this new British governor ruining their previously somewhat positive or at least neutral relationship, they hollow his skull out and use it as a cup, just as a sign of disrespect and like to sort of assert dominance of like, we have defeated you, don't mess with us. This is a tactic that's not unique to North Africa. The Mongols famously did it in Central Asia as well. It's a uh, Charlemagne and the Franks used it a lot on the Romans. There's a there's a fancy Latin term for it, but I can't remember where you use someone's skull as a cup. And it, okay, so the Ashanti have this overwhelming victory. So you'd assume that they just sweep down into the coast, and they do. Uh, and you'd assume that they just capture the British colony and basically kick them out, but they don't. They fight a battle against the British, and the British in their in their own land in Ghana. Uh, start by losing this battle. But the British wheel out basically a new weapon that hasn't been shown off in Ashanti land called rocket artillery, um, which is a bit different from old cannons in ways that I don't have the physics expertise to describe perfectly. But basically, it what's really special about it is that it creates a, a, a very impressive sight and sound that cannons simply couldn't recreate. And this... Uh, sort of spooks the Ashanti into an early retreat, which devastates them because the British follow and sort of like tail them and attack them while they're retreating. The Ashanti managed to eventually sort of reconcile and fight to a stalemate with the British. And uh, after eight years of fighting, the British finally sign a peace treaty with the Ashanti. And this treaty of 1831 is actually a really big deal. Because the British do something that they rarely ever do, which is that they recognize the Ashanti as an independent nation. Now, that doesn't sound special, right? Like, the Ashanti were already independent, right? Like, what's the big deal? But the thing is, is that when a nation is officially, capital I, independent, you can't just send in British settlers and merchants. You know, like, the British, for example, never recognize the independence of many Native American tribes because they would then have to negotiate with them when they sent in missionaries and settlers. But now that they've said the Ashanti are capital I, independent kingdom, they can't just do that. They have to ask permission. They have to negotiate. They have to treat them like they would, say, France in a negotiation. So why did they recognize um, the Ashanti as an independent nation? Was it because the battle wasn't so much in their favor? Well, it's it's simple. If the If the British don't recognize the Ashanti and give them a favorable peace treaty, the Ashanti are just going to keep fighting them. And this war is not going well for the British. It's cutting into their profits. You know, earlier they got completely decimated in a battle. The war is now basically a bloody stalemate. Um, so sure, you recognize their independence and the war ends and you can go back to trading. And is this the first official Ashanti war? Or are we not even there yet? No, no, this is the first official Ashanti war. The, this is the one that in the history books is the Capital F, First Anglo-Ashanti War. Although I would argue it's actually the third, but 
I mean, you know how history is with that sort of thing. So the the first um, and the the two, I don't know, Alpha War, Beta War, and then Number One War. Yeah. I guess we can we can number it. But great. So Ashanti are recognized as an independent nation, and then everything is good. The treaties end, and there's there's no more four more wars. What happens next? Um, well, basically, the most important thing is that you asked how big the British were at this point. And earlier, it was kind of hard to define, but it's really easy to define now because they set a border at a river in Ghana called the Pra River, which basically comes out of, uh, or basically flows into the Atlantic Ocean at this sort of like horizontal and then vertical angle that really makes it look good as like a coastal border. And this is not really a gain or loss of land for the Ashanti. It was sort of a consolidation of disputed land more than anything else. And that Pra River border is going to stay for quite a while. And basically, uh, from 1831 until 1863, the Ashanti are, enjoy largely peaceful relations, which is quite a while. That's 32 years, you know. Um, if I said that I was married for 32 years, you'd probably think, wow, that's a really good relationship, right? Well, also, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think most countries, if you look at any sort of history of any country, most countries don't stay out of war for 32 years. So 32 years of peace is a, you know, it's a lifetime or not a lifetime, but a full generation and more. A lifetime for maybe someone who lives dangerously. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe and I shouldn't say lifetime. People, like <laughs> half a lifetime, which is still a lot. Right. Yeah, that's a it's a pretty strong relationship at this point. The I mean the British and Ashanti are basically neutral towards each other. I wouldn't call them friends, but they're you know, the British have recognized their independence and they've sorta you know things have improved. Where do things fall apart? Well, they don't fall apart for even until eighteen sixty three. Because that's the start of the Anglo the second Anglo Ashanti war. And what really happens is this is more of a standard diplomatic dispute than a complete collapse of a relationship, right? An Ashanti fugitive crosses into British land and he's being followed by Ashanti soldiers who cross into British land to try and capture him. And this provokes a war. You know, that, that's pretty standard diplomatic faux pas. Like, you know, one country sort of, you know, has to capture someone and they, you know, maybe go a little bit too far in trying to get him or like, in West Africa, it wasn't really a big deal to go into another country's land to capture a fugitive from your own country, right? Whereas in like Europe or America, for example, like if a criminal escapes to Canada, we expect Canada to give him back to us, not for us to just march in and take him, right? That wasn't really the case with the Ashanti. So they didn't really work on that paradigm. In the West African paradigm, if someone, like if a criminal escapes from your country to a neighboring country, you're allowed to just go and get him. It's respectful to allow their troops in to take that, uh, to take that criminal back to their country. So, is, how long is this war? This seems like a um, more shortened conflict, but that it, it it sets these two entities on a new path to violence. Yeah, it's a pretty brief war. Not uh, basically the Ashanti army. That crossed into British land uh, engages with the British army, and both sides end up sending reinforcements until it's more of a battle. There's some initial Ashanti gains, but it's mostly a stalemate. The British and Ashanti are mostly unable to really move either side's lines. But eventually, two things really start to take a toll on the British. Um, 
is that the Ashanti wing sort of, instead of trying to encircle the British, sort of set into a more harassment and sniper-focused role, which they basically set up positions around the British and just pepper them with cyber attacks. And tropical disease as well starts to take a real toll on the British. And so the British think, okay, look, like, this war isn't going well for us. You know, it's a stalemate. We're not really gaining anything. Let's just, let's just get out of here. Fine, Ashanti, you can keep your fugitive. Like, <laughs> that's a, it's, it's a war that really doesn't change anything. But it sort of shows that the Ashanti are still capable of holding their own and even defeating a British force. But there are more wars. How do things, how does our 30-year peace unravel? Our 30-year peace really unravels with the annexation of the Dutch Gold Coast colony in 1871, I believe, in which the, so for some context, the Ashanti have a much better relationship with the Dutch than they do with the British. They've never fought a war with the Dutch. The Dutch have always been sort of Ashanti allies in the region. They actually provided some material help to the Ashanti with one of their earliest wars against the British. And in return for this help, the Ashanti decided to lend, not give, but lend some land to the Dutch for use in uh, the Gold Coast. And, you know, okay, things are going well. They're happy to land the this land to the Dutch because it gives them merchants with whom they can trade. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a win-win situation for the Ashanti to have the Dutch there. And it's a win for the, it's a win for the Dutch as well. But in 1871, the Dutch and British agreed to a treaty called the Dutch Anglo Treaty of 1871, because, you know, historians are boring. And they basically agree to swap a bunch of colonies in at various capacity throughout their colonial empires to basically smooth out borders and make sure that, you know, yeah, basically the, the British concede some stuff in Indonesia and the Dutch concede some stuff in Africa, you know, just to basically more establish who has trading rights where. And this is a problem because one of the territories that the British take from the Dutch is land that wasn't really the Dutch's to give away. It was this land that they were uh, basically leasing from the Ashanti. And the Ashanti, upon seeing all these British troops move into this formerly Dutch land that was, you know, really theirs, they, they're, whoa, 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 what, what's going on here? You know, we gave this land to the Dutch to use, not for you to just march in and take. It's basically by them viewed as more of a hostile takeover than any sort of like diplomatic arrangement or, or like rearrangement, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> listening to that. It, it's kind of like if I or borrowed a, a microphone or I borrowed a TV from a friend and then I sold it to someone else. That's a pretty good deal for me, but not so good for, for uh, really anyone else, but for, for the person that I borrowed it from, especially. That is a great way of putting it. I was going to use the metaphor that it's like you loan a friend a car so that you guys can carpool to work together. And then they sell it for cheap. <laughs> yes, similar, similar concept. Yeah. And then, but you also, I mean, you have the added bonus for the Dutch of like, they're not sticking around to be your friend with the TV. They're literally leaving the entire area. So, you know, not their problem anymore. Exactly. And that is a huge problem that really 
I want to highlight because basically with this acquisition of this uh, Dutch lease, the British now have basically a monopoly on all trade that goes in and out of Ashantiland. And of course, like, I mean, we all learn about this with monopolies is that with monopolies, you can charge as much or in this case, as little as you want. So they can say to the Ashanti, like, hey, we want to buy some ivory. Uh, we're going to give you half as much as we would have earlier and half as much of the, as the Dutch would have, because who else are you going to sell to? Right. And the Ashanti just sort of have to take it. And this is a huge problem. And basically, in retaliation, the Ashanti kidnap some European missionaries and basically hold them as hostage to say, OK, Brits, ha ha, this is funny. Give us our land back um, and we'll give you these missionaries back. And this turns out to be something of a mistake. Because now I know what you're thinking. Is it really a mistake? Can't the can't the Ashanti just beat the British like they have in these previous wars? Well, no, because a few things have been going on in Ashanti land in Britain that have really taken any pre-existing sort of uh, like parity that existed between the forces and really just thrown it completely to hell. And the main one that I, I cannot highlight enough is that by now, the Industrial Revolution in Britain is in full swing. They've really been industrializing for a while, but around this era is when you finally see it start to get to its proper level that we associate with an industrial economy, right? And this is a huge problem for the Ashanti, because uh, with this new industrialization model, the British adopt a supply, uh, a supply chain model that's based on industrialized ships. You know, they adopt... Uh, more importantly, a manufacturing model that is based on the assembly line. And so with this, the British are capable of producing more guns, powder, and ammunition in like one factory than in the entirety of Ashanti land could ever produce. The Ashanti are still using the old ways in which, you know, which is similar to what used to be done in Europe, in which you have a dedicated, you know, weaponsmith, Right. And, you know, the, that weaponsmith is like a craftsman. He, he, builds the, he builds the rifle, you know, and then he sells you the rifle in its completed form. You know, it's, it's the old ways. It's how things used to be done, but it's, it's kind of starting to grow outdated. And the Ashanti know this. Um, they, like, especially military leadership within the Ashanti, report on multiple instances to the king that, like, this is a problem. Um, we aren't able to match British production. Uh, our firearms, which used to, uh, the, the Ashanti firearms are based off of European models from like the late 1700s and were better modified for the conditions that they used. And they were saying, look, this, this was fine when we used it, but we need to upgrade to these new British models. And we need to start changing our mode of production to a more assembly line focused one. But the king of Ashanti land is a guy named Kofi Karikari. And he is maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, we're not really sure, really paranoid about the army state taking power from him. And given how he acts later in his term, I can we can kind of assume that it's at least, if it's a valid fear, he at least is exaggerating it because he's going to turn out to be quite a paranoid king in general. And I want to use that as a transition to end this conversation, we're going to continue and finish up the Ashanti Wars, but I like this point, uh, kind of fore, foreboding or forewarning maybe, 
but also to think about the changes that are happening as we reach the turn of the century. So I'm going to wrap it up here and we're going to finish next time with the end of the Ashanti three end war with the fourth and fifth or the sixth and seventh next time. If you like what you've heard so far, I also highly recommend going to listen to the History of Africa podcast. And if you also like what you heard from me, then please subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends and help us get discovered even more. So thank you so much, Andy. I'm really excited to talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure coming on.